Okay. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Lexi the Greek. And Spross just talked over Cooper. Let's do it again. That, Let's no, do it that's again. fine. No, we'll, we'll, uh, <laughs> this is a good point to introduce our guest, Jeff Spross, the Hi. world's, I was, world's I was, best radio man. I was you so, had one job, Spross, one job. I was so excited. I'm sorry. I just like I, I just wanted to make sure it heard me, and it, it's hearing me. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, Ryan, I assume you can edit me out talking over everyone at the very beginning there. I could, but I won't. It's more fun not to. And we'll <laughs> do it live. Mean. That's my Bill O'Reilly impression. Um, and Spross, who are, who are you again? Tell us what you do for Okay, so for my name... My name is Jeff Spross. I am the business and economics correspondent uh, at The Week, so one of Ryan's colleagues there at that particular publication. And uh, I don't, I, I guess I am a member of the like angry quasi dirtbag left at this point. I don't know. I don't know where I fall. I love that. Don't let others define you, okay, Jeff? Don't let other Coops oh, and I, will I, I don't you, know. I'm, I'm 37. They can define me how I want, how they want. I don't care anymore. <laughs> I'm too old. That's beautiful. I'm just going beautiful. to drink my bourbon. I love it. Well, welcome back, everybody, and and we have our our wonderful guest back, return appearance, Jeff Spross. Uh, I think this this is our first return appearance, is it not, Coops? That's right. Yeah, Jeff's the hey. uh, the record holder at this point. Hey. And we have Jeff back for a second time, not just because of his, his beautiful voice, which we discussed at length last time, and not just because of his expertise, but because a burning question at hand for all of us that Spross uh, would like to discuss with us is the topic of immigration. And we have the migrant caravan and the uh, unfortunate uh, right-wing response to it fostered by Donald Trump and his racist... Um, populist rhetoric but just broadly we thought it would be good to situate discussions of immigration asylum in the context of policy and leftist ideology and try to figure out how to think through um, a proper way to adjudicate these questions of um, you know what is the proper leftist position on borders, immigration, how many immigrants, is there a limit? How do we think through um, the policy questions? What are the salient uh, factors that go into how you address immigration policy? Uh, what is the distinction for refugees and those seeking asylum? And, and, and above all, just how do we respond when the right has a very clear, uh, cohesive, anti-immigrant, anti-refugee populist message in a way that resonates intellectually and emotionally with others. So, so that's just a broad uh, overview. There's a lot of ways we can go with it, and we're just going to dive in and do it. So um, with that, I'm going to hand it over to Coops if you have anything that, to add before we, uh, we interrogate our good friend on this issue. Uh, yeah, I think to, to maybe start things off, um, I think I will make the, the, the arg- arguable, but, but I think correct uh assertion that the United States is more hospitable to immigrants than like most countries uh and, and probably I I would say probably virtually all countries and that's despite the fact that that you know Trump is obviously whipping up tons of anti-immigrant fear um 
and uh you know there there is a lot of genuine hostility towards immigrants amongst you know the rest of the population and then it kind of always has been for a long time but the thing about the united states that is very different from um most you know european countries especially is that i mean you know the cliche is we're a nation of immigrants that's you know true and not true or it's like kind of also a a, a nation of we stole all the land and and like killed everyone who lived here before but um i agree in, you know as you, a matter your ancestors did it coops not mine you did it it wasn't me <laughs> You're only half Greek. I'm first gen. No, listen to this, motherfucker. My mom immigrated, and my father was granted he was adopted, but his father immigrated from Turkey as a Greek uh, after the the genocide of of the Greeks and Armenians in Smyrna. So don't give me that shit. I'm legit. <laughs> well, my ancestry dead ends in the the back hills of Kentucky, so we don't even know what, what atrocities have they've committed they're probably bad but we'll never find out um (laughs) nevertheless you know like like the 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 vast majority of people who who live in this country as as a descriptive matter uh are descended from immigrants some of them quite recent all four of donald trump's grandparents were born in another country um and experiences pro-immigrant sympathies that explains that yeah yeah, exactly. Well, and that's also that's also a very common thing of of the the recent immigrant hoss, you know, people who want to pull up the ladder basically and prevent other people from taking advantage of the same opportunity that that they did. Um but yeah, you know, African Americans uh are, you know, were forcibly immigrated from from uh, other places and you know, like the big panic over uh, recently over Latinos uh, I think the way that the right has framed this is that, uh, you know, look at these people. They're they're not like the rest of Americans. They're not like, you know, previous generations of immigrants from Germany or Ireland or whatever or England. You know, they, they don't, you know, a lot of them don't speak English, blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's total bullshit. And the fact is, like, Latinos are probably more naturally acculturated to uh, the United States than... Uh, most previous ways of immigrants because America is already very heavily Latino because, I mean, for one thing, we literally stole half of Mexico back in uh, 1848, and Latino culture has penetrated very deeply into this country. You know, there's Mexican restaurant in every city and town across the country. Spanish is de facto second language in, like, you know, maybe... 40 50 percent of the land and um you know like it's just very familiar and so i think that what what i what you know what the sort of starting implication i i would like to to begin with is that if it weren't for right-wing propaganda that's obviously a big if i don't think there would be all that much worry about immigrants coming in you know like like i don't think it would be this and certainly in some places there would be you know where there's like very concentrated flows and i guess we'll talk about that later but i don't think that there would be really a lot of terrible panic over this sort of stuff it's it's being whipped up like sort of out of nothing you know imaginary stuff what are you saying there's like a 24 hour this is crazy are you saying there's like a 24 hour news network that like makes money just off of propping up irrational emotional 
uh, fears in people. This is nuts. What are you talking about? Yeah. The caravan is off the front pages. Even Trump's not talking about it anymore. The, the, that's which that's is strange. Not even the first caravan this year. I, I believe it was like the third one. What, what could explain that? I don't get it. <laughs> so, so is this where we, is this where we interject? Go ahead. Dive in, baby. Okay. I, I, I have a partial disagreement with Ryan here, which is that I think the... It's uh, not allowed. There we go. Um, okay, go I, think, I, I think the, the immigration panic is kind of a feedback loop between the right-wing propaganda machine and like some underlying structural realities. Um, the main structural reality being that like you know the country is brutally unequal. We've had stagnating wages for decades. And, so, and we've had a very... Also, again, the right-wing propaganda machine, we've had a very successful ideological effort to cast uh, cast scarcity as an overwhelming problem within the American politi- political economy, right? Like, um, which is ridiculous. I mean, like, GDP per capita in this country is, like, around $60,000 at this point. That's per capita. That's, like, for every man, woman, and child, there is, like, $60,000 lying around, which is... Insane. I mean, that's an insane level of wealth. Like the idea that we are suffering from scarcity is bananas. But precisely because of inequality um, and, you know, the extraction of wealth from the working class by like the ownership class, et cetera, et cetera, people experience scarcity. And I mean, they really do because like all their ability to like participate in the economy is being taken away from them through like, you know, you know, the fact that like all the money that represents the labor and the, the wealth they create is getting sucked off to Wall Street and all the rest of it. So they're genuinely experiencing scarcity. And I think that creates an environment where it is very, very easy to demonize, uh, to demonize another, like immigrants being like a very, a very, very convenient target. I think you saw this in Britain. This is what caused Brexit, the whole aftermath of British austerity following 2008. 2008 crash. This is what you saw across Europe. Like, I mean, uh, I know Ryan has read Adam Tooze's uh, history of yeah. uh, the, the financial crisis. I'm reading it right now. It is astonishing the sheer level of destructive stupidity with which the fiscal and monetary policy of the European Union was run. It is gobsmacking. Is and it stupid I, or, is like, it, or is it purposeful? Yeah, like, of course, they freaked out. And because, like, you know, the ideological apparatus prevents us from saying, well, maybe we should, like, you know, try something akin to socialism or at least move in that direction. The only, I mean, we've discussed Polanyi and all the rest of it previously. I know, well, I know you guys have discussed Polanyi previously. So, like, all of that energy gets shunted into, you know, the hegemonic ethnostate or, like, something akin to that, which is, like, why we start, like, kicking the crap out of immigrants. So I'll, I'll start with that. I think it's a feedback loop. I think there's a real underlying structural reality that doesn't have anything to, like, it doesn't have anything to do with, like, immigration being, like, a naturally uh, and inherently destabilizing force. And we can discuss whether or not it is or could be under some circumstances. Um, but I don't think that's what's going on right now. What it is is, like, you know, we have an underlying political, eco- political economic reality that is, like, and the energy from that is having to get shunted into this anti-immigrant fiasco. Right, right. So, so to both your points, I guess maybe this is something to take up. Uh, I think Jeff makes a, a very good point, which I think fits with, with Cooper's point, which is that, like, whatever the actual issue that is, like, 
objectively worth debating in terms of how proper immigration policy should be adjudicated and, 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 um, uh, you know, understood, uh, that has nothing to do with the political framing and discussion of, of immigration and refugees and so forth, which is totally bound up with the narrative of the right that has taken advantage of these structural problems of neoliberalism, causing uh, at least the perception of scarcity, the, the perception of uh, inequality, and any number of things that we can talk about that forces the citizens of this country to find meaning in blaming uh, outgroups for the economy and their situation, their lack of agency, their lack of success, et cetera, et cetera. And so like the ways in which Trump and others can capitalize on people being upset over their economic precarity feeds into a type of political discourse on immigration that has very little to do with what actually you know, relates to the well-being of the country and what, what our proper policy apart from that should be, right? Yeah. Uh, Ryan, did you want to... I have more thoughts. No, this, is, right? this is Ryan's turn. Yeah. Jump in, Ryan. You, no, you go ahead, Jeff. If you got... Okay. I, I can do some stuff, but go... <laughs> right, go well, um, so... Uh, yeah, so one of the things we... Uh, like, some of the stuff we, we passed around before doing this was... Uh, some stuff Raihan Salam has written a new book, uh, basically kind of making a pro immigrant, like the pro immigrant case for tougher borders and like less immigration. Um, just basically, basically his argument is like, I, 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 I mean, I think the way to characterize is like, you know, we can only, we, we aren't doing a good job assimilating immigrants right now. So we need to like cut way back on the amount we're bringing in until we get our shit sorted. Um, yeah. uh, and both and Raihan Salam talked to Ezra Klein on this podcast. Francis Fukuyama actually talked to Ezra Klein not too long ago, and they also talked about immigration. And good old Francis, we love yeah. Francis. And both Let's Fukuyama, call him Frank. Can we call him Frank? Fuki, yeah, both Fukuyama and uh, am I even pronouncing his name rightly? Fukuyama? I don't know. Fukuyama, I think is correct. Okay, so yeah. Fu, Fukuyama and, and Salam, I think, both converge on this argument that basically, like you know. Something like the Gang of Eight compromise is what's necessary, right? Like the Gang of Eight is, is what could solve this. Like we get we we get amnesty to everybody here because like that's just like acknowledging reality, and we don't really have any other options that are viable besides doing that. And the thing you give the conservatives in exchange for that is much tougher border enforcement and tighter immigration controls going forward. Um, and Klein's response, certainly to Fukuyama, was like, I don't really think that's what's going on. And I think Klein is right in that, like, the idea that there is some centrist compromise to be had on immigration is a fantasy because no. that's, yeah, it's like it, it, we're dealing with a kind of atavistic, like, right wing, like, ethnic identity thing, right? Like, the this thing is like, about. That we already tried that. Right. Exactly. This is why it failed. Right. This is why the Gang of Eight failed. Yes. Is that it misses, like, the underlying point. And, like, where, uh, not surprisingly, I think Ezra Klein goes off the rails is he associates this with, like, we're just having this, like, you know – right-wing moment, right? Like, Can can I I just say that we have to be better than Ezra? I mean, I... I, Does anyone... very handsome. Does anyone He's get that tall. joke? Does anyone understand better, the joke? Oh, no. Oh, oh, God That's damn it. God oh. damn it, Alexi. No one got the joke. Damn it. 
better than Ezra. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Hello, <laughs> hello, late '90s indie rock. Look, Is it the same age? Rock? I still I don't, don't get it. What the hell? Oh, Coops God. didn't get it. Coops knows all about music. Oh, wow. Actually, I think the way to sum this up is that there is amongst sort of quote unquote responsible, reasonable conservatives, reformicon, reformist conservatives, et cetera, et cetera, that whole ball game. Um, you know, there is this belief that like there is a centrist compromise to be had on immigration, which is essentially the gang of eight formula. Um, of, you know, you give amnesty to everyone who's already here, you tighten immigration going forward, you, like, jack up border enforcement, blah, 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 blah. Um, and the reason we can't get to this compromise is because uh, there are extremists on both sides, right? Um, and I think this is baloney uh, because, as we just said, like, the Gang of Eight process failed, like, and it's also worth noting, like, we have had draconian border enforcement for a while, and it doesn't seem to register with anyone that we have draconian border enforcement. So, like, yeah. this is this is very much, like I said, it's kind of like an atavistic performative uh, process that's going on here. Like, we're not, we're not, like, the idea that there is a specific, like, policy ask around immigration is false. It is, it is a misunderstanding of what is going on here. Um, now, the problem is that with a lot of people on the left, you get this, you know, uh, from the kind of like similar to the Trumpism is racism all the way down analysis, which is that, well, we're having this freak out because like ethno-nationalism is on the rise. So people just want less immigration. They don't want different people coming here. And that's that. And there's nothing else to it. Um, and so just to get back to what I was saying is like, I think that is also incorrect because like what I said, what like what I think is driving this or is at least... providing the groundwork for the right-wing propaganda apparatus to take advantage of is the underlying economic problems, the underlying economic inequality, labor exploitation, et cetera. And so, like, to to fix this thing, you would need to... I mean, you would, you would, you, you, to fix this thing, I mean, it's like, it's, I'm like, I'm not presenting an easy solution because I'm saying, well, to fix this thing, what you really need to do is, like, fix the fucking political economy and fix inequality, and that's what's going to, like, drain off a lot of this energy... So that we can arrive at some, so that people just stop freaking out, and the, the atavistic energy drains down, and we can come to some kind of policy solution. Jeff, we, our purpose is to get every conversation to lead to revolution. So this is perfect. This is okay, exactly well, what we're hoping. We want you, you to call for right. revolution. No, seriously, I was thinking beforehand. I was like, my 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 pithy, crude summation of my thesis here is that. If we want open borders, we first have to have socialism. Like, that's basically it. Not a baby. Not a baby. Yeah. Also, I, atavis, atavistic, great word. I think, like, I don't in even honor know if I'm of. using uh, it correctly. No, no, it's great. In, in honor of Rich Yesselson, we should use revanchist as well. I like revanchist yeah. a lot. I love this the fact that he good. uses that. Yeah. <laughs> to, to your point, Jeff, I would also add that, you know, the you, you uh, sent over this uh, episode of This American Life. Um, you know, which is about immigration in a town in uh, Alabama, you know, and where you really do see this sort of like the, this like b- b- bottom competition between, you know, like the white workers in this chicken plant that that uh, really feel like they're that the immigrants are like literally coming in and stealing their jobs and somewhat more remarkably in the episode, they note that like the 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 immigrants won't join the union that yeah, they have there which i think is significant they, we can get back to that yeah. but yeah that's uh, that's that's pretty fascinating 
uh, maybe in maybe in multiple ways. But um, I think it's also the case that, you know, like in terms of proximate, like raw politics, like how the how the D.C. debate and, you know, um, so on and so forth went down and why the 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 gang of eight or whatever compromise failed in 2013 was because uh the 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 right is never ever going to give up immigration as a political issue because it's too convenient as a way of whipping up a frenzy among their base uh, so it doesn't matter what you do for border enforcement. You could deport every Mexican in the United States, even the citizens, right. and there would still be Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson on his white power hour on Fox News <laughs> whipping up a frenzy over, uh, you know, there's oh, there's a brown person in Starbucks and everyone needs to panic right. and don't look at the top 1% person getting a, you know, massive tax cut or, you know, Picking your pocket, basically. Yeah. It's I just, too I just convenient pa- for them. I said, I just want to pause for a second and just say, I always knew Tucker Carlson was an asshole, but like the moral depths to which he has sunk, like since the Trump era began, is astonishing. Look, look you know, I, I blame John Stewart. Do you guys remember when John Stewart went on Crossfire like a million years oh, yeah, ago? I remember. And that. basically yeah. like, scorated Tucker Carlson and like Paul Begala or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I think that gave Tucker PTSD and he's never recovered since. (laughs) Yeah. But Ryan, yeah, I think you're right. They, they, they like to get back to like the whole Polanyi interplay between fascism and capitalism discussion, like the right needs immigration as an issue because they, their fundamental purpose is to protect the oligarchy and to protect the the oligarchy. They need to whip up fear about immigrants. I mean, like, period end of discussion immigrants gays uh muslims uh people of color generally feminists any group they can other right yeah yeah um shall we talk about open borders so uh trigger warning no i don't know some kind of warning because lefties disagree on this this is going to be interesting i think yeah because you have you have lefties who are clearly in favor of open borders, um, strange bedfellows with some libertarians who are also in favor of open borders. And then you have, uh, you know, various different defenses of something that's not open border uh, policy. So I, I think this is an interesting thing to talk about and uh, see if we can't situate and defend different positions from a principled left position. See if we can do that. Let's, 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 what does the left have to say about this issue, basically? I could start off, maybe. I could I could take the plunge here, just to say that, like, I, I would view this in two ways. Uh, like, do, do I support open borders uh, in the context of, like, current political economy, the current organization of human society on this planet? And... No, I don't think I do. Would I like to work towards a future where that might be a viable possibility, where where people could literally just go wherever they wanted all the time? Yes, definitely, I do think so. But I just I don't think it's viable in the in the current um, 
you know, the current moment, either politically or or otherwise, you know, in terms of the effects on the United States or the effects on other countries. So so if I can pause you there, you're contrasting the ideal or the philosophically um I guess the philosophically uh, better option would be to have a world in which open borders and free movement of peoples was uh, a reality. But you think at least uh, to get to that reality, you know, even if that's your ideal in the short term, that can't be the the current position that you hold policy wise for various reasons. Is that right? Yeah. And and maybe like um, maybe a good example would be to look at the. the European Union um, and the uh, the the policy of this Schengen area, which does allow basically free movement of people in in like most of the countries of the EU. You can go back and forth between each one. Uh, you don't need a visa if you're coming from one to the other, and that's really like I would say a a a very. Um, worthy and laudable achievement in terms of the like that's probably the best part of the eu a lot of the eu sucks the euro is a atrocious policy disaster that is like you know one of the cataclysmic uh economic policy decisions but the schengen area like that's just like straight up a great achievement of politics but what it took was you know a ton of politics between all those countries and just like carefully building up and accreting all these treaties one on the other over time um over decades and you know you could say it's like like uh, unquestionably is pretty racist that like you don't allow any african countries to even be involved in this sort of thing but like i think that is sort of you know if you want to have a world in which like there is open borders, that sort of process is going to be how you build it up, you know, over time where like you're, you're constructing these sort of like institutions in which like labor mobility, you know, or human mobility is, is slowly but surely like eroded in a way that it does have, you know, does, 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 uh, obtain broad legitimacy within the affected, you know, democratic uh, representations. And if you did it in a way where, where it's like you just say, you know, back in like 1950 or whatever, and you're Poland or you're the or you're Germany or something, and you just say, like, we're going to fiat open borders. Um, and there's, you know, we're not going to try to, like, make this function in any sort of like international context. What would what would happen? Massive influx of people, nativist backlash, policy ends, you you know, you've failed. And I think that, that like, that is, you know, I mean, open borders. I remember when Vox was persecuting Bernie Sanders over the fact that he didn't support open borders, uh, which no U.S. politician does or ever has done, I don't think, uh, for, you know, in the, in the modern context. Um but it, I think that would be a well, very similar process would happen in this country. Like, what if you just said open borders in this country, what would happen? You would have, you know, maybe 50 million people would, would come, would, like, jump in in the course of, like, a very short period of time. You would have a massive nativist backlash. And the, 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 
you know, the politics of it would be undermined. And I don't see any way around that, even though, I mean, that's a pretty uncomfortable conclusion, but I don't think that, like, you can get around it, you know? It's not, like, I certainly support massively scaling up the current, like, number of people who are allowed in, especially refugees and so forth, but, like, you know, the the lots and lots of new people coming in very all at the same time really does create political tension and i think it's like it's a a risky policy so So, go ahead okay um a few things i wanted to add on to ryan's point where like i kind of i basically agree and i wanted to like sort of add on a few other things and emphasize a few things um if you look at the I guess, you know, the non like reactionary vacuous arguments from conservatives on immigration. I think the way to describe their position um, is that, you know, there is, you know, society is a social organism, right? Like we talked about that this American life episode where you have like, how do people on the ground in a particular community to react when people who are look different from them, speak a different language, have different cultural practices, whatever, like come in in large numbers. Um, there is a, and like those interactions all on at individual communal level scale up to a kind of national, uh, I mean, a, an ecosystem almost. Um, like, right, we need to think of this as kind of like an, a, a mass organism that is having a very significant environmental stimulus or environmental like, a burden placed on it by an environment and it has to like figure out how to adapt to it. Right. And so the conservative position is just like, you can't ask too much of this organism. Right. And we have entered into a period where immigration, immigrant immigrants as a, as a pot, as a percentage of the population are quite high. Like it's about as high as it's ever been, at least going back to like 1850. And so the conservative position is just like, well, we're just, we're stressing the social organism too much and we got to back off. Um, And I think, I mean, I think that is true to the extent that, like, it is a social organism and it probably does have limits, right? There are probably limits to what it can take. Um, My beef with the conservatives is, and I kind of touched on this earlier, is that, like, how much the social organism can take in terms of immigration is going to be deeply determined by the political economy. It's going to be deeply determined by, like, you know, how our economy is structured. What do these people encounter when they arrive? Like, you know, do we have the, you know, U.S. public housing authority, you know, meet them at the border and say, great, you want to, like, join America, like, let's find you a place to live. And, you know, the national job guarantee system is like, okay, what can we find for you to do where we pay you a living wage and give you benefits and, like, integrate you into, like, the, the working system and all the rest of it? And we don't have any of that. And, of course, like, you know, the immigrants come in and, you know, they know they're under threat. And like we said from that episode, they like in that particular case of this American life episode, they don't want to join the union because they're scared because joining the yeah. union means putting them on someone's radar. And because they're Ill- illegally, that could put them under threat. So you have this whole system that uh, essentially encourages alienation on both sides. It encourages people already here to feel alienated from the people who just arrived and vice versa. Um, and that's all, that's both a result of like our, our, the draconianism of our legal immigration system as it exists, but that is also de- deeply integrated with like, you know, the exploitive exploitative nature of our overall economy. Um, so that is the thing you need. That is the thing that like, I think the conservatives miss 
that like drives me nuts is they just they don't they don't yeah. deal with the political economy at all as like something that can change how much the social organism organism can absorb at one time. Like we could be able to take open borders with a different political economy. I don't know. I would like to see us run that experiment. No, um, I don't think they're missing it though. I, I well, think yeah, that's quite I, intentional. I right? mean, yeah, you want to, yeah. I, I'm 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 putting my non-cynical taking other people in good faith hat on right now. Well, no, this is this is a good distinction to make between the results we think are good and then like the political tack and rhetoric and ideology we we put forth in order to try achieve something that would be good, right? Because like it seems to me, and and this is maybe against both of you, and you tell me what you think. <laughs> I'm thinking like I, I'm thinking akin to like prison abolition and like. The, the arguments in favor of that, uh, immediately you get resistance from basically everyone with prison abolition because what are you going to do with the Charles Mansons? What are you going to do with the murderers, right? And the same thing. What Open borders, what the hell? You're going to have 50 million – Coops just said 50 million people are going to storm the borders, right? Uh, but, of course, like the ideological framing is meant to do something politically that doesn't necessarily like, – Obviously, if you push for prison abolition, the first thing that happens is not going to be all prisons are like erased, right? Like, and if you push for open borders, the first thing that happens isn't going to be actual open borders. So, like that rhetorical or ideological tack is meant to kind of like challenge certain assumptions that feed into like countervailing um, logics that the that the right loves to, to to take on to. So, so if you say like, no, fuck you, right wingers. Basically, bring everyone in and it'll be fine. You're challenging a certain logic that there's like we have so much land. Do you know how many refugees Greece has had, and, and and what the actual like land and population ratio is for the refugees they've taken in compared to what we take in? It's absurd. Like it's it's like it would be ridiculous to try to compare and see how many people we'd have to take in to get to that point, right? But like, so I guess what I'm saying is. How much politically do we need to battle against the right on like equal footing as if they're actually contemplating what's good for us when they're doing these ridiculous like racist arguments to try to just establish their own power and cut off all chance for for people to to integrate right uh, shouldn't we be trying to push as much as possible for a kind of policy stance that says there is no threat from from these others that come in. We should be accommodating as many as possible. That's not actually at the root structurally of the economic precarity. Like, shouldn't we be pushing as much as possible for a narrative that says all the things they're saying make no sense and don't explain at all the problems that people are going through today? I... I mean, yes and no. You know, I feel like, I mean, I also don't agree with the prison abolition people. I was, I was, uh, I was recently reading a an article from 2015 about the this the the the, the like the hardest prison in Norway, the, you know, like a maximum security prison for all the most just just yep. crazy murderers in Norway. It's like a dorm room, right? Yeah, it's it, I mean literally it's like a dorm room. Like they literally, literally have knives like on the in the kitchen that you use to cook and like there's TVs in every you know yep. room that they have and so on and so forth. Um and it's just like 
it's like hell i, I want to go there <laughs> you know? yeah well but pri- nice. prison ab- but prison abolition as a poli- like a political stance might get you there faster yeah well i mean though the thing is though it's still a prison and it's still the place where they put people who do heinous things which there are still in norway despite being a just like a star trek utopia in most other <laughs> circumstances you know where like every need is catered for the state is there for every single possible outcome like yeah. like any minor inconvenience it's like i'm i'm out of kleenexes like help me government and they jump I in i think i think once in a while we have to put people in a dorm room i think that's probably right yeah right and so in that case it's like so are we saying prison abolition or is this just kind of like a slogan that's actually but not wait, what no we but really are, you, are you are you missing my point about the the difference between what you push for politically and what that does in terms of political reality well i think we're talking we're talking about like the the political use for the usefulness of the utopian demand right the way it kind of exactly that's right breaks open it. it breaks open people's thinking it opens up kind of like the imaginative space and that sort of thing right exactly that's right. um the thing i would say is that i think I, I like. I mean, like, I, I I don't object to Alexei's like idea of like particularly like the uh, the idea of open borders as one of those utopian demands that can be useful in exactly that regard. I think that's right. The one the thing I would say is that when it comes to immigration, I think you really it really cannot be treated in isolation. And I mean, like, this is true of everything, but I think it is particularly true of immigration. Um, and uh, this gets back to like one of the things I wanted to add on to Ryan's earlier point about uh, the Schengen and my Schengen move free movement. In am I pronouncing that yeah. correctly? Who knows? And who yeah. cares? The free the free movement <laughs> policy within the EU. It's not just that they had like a big free movement policy within the EU. It's that this free movement was combined with a set of monetary and fiscal over, overarching monetary and fiscal policies designed to essentially yoke all of the EU countries together in a setup that was inevitably going to create like permanent recessions somewhere. It is the fiscal monetary policy setup over there is banana. It is basically yeah. there to ensure yeah. someone is in a, is in a great depression at all times. So what you are doing <laughs> when you combine those two things is you are creating with your economic setup the very scarcity that the right wing is then going to blame on your free borders, right? So you yes. you are creating you, yes. you are creating this dynamic that is like you if you had intended to design a dynamic that was going to like just fire up the right wing nationalists to a degree we have not seen in decades, you would design the EU as it actually exists. So, yeah, yeah. I, so I definitely do not mean to endorse that aspect of the EU system. Right. right. And I think you that bastard. This, How dare you? Coops. The Schengen area I, is, I would say, under is is at a severe political risk for exactly those sorts of of reasons. Um, I just mean to say I just mean to say that like the 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 way if you want to build that up you should do it in a similar fashion but one which is has like more intelligent design and more democracy however though back to your point alexi about um you know utopian demands uh i think one you know we've been talking sort of about tactical political objections and just like saying like it, like people won't you know they won't uh, agree to this or just they'll, 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 the, the, the politics just won't scan. I think 
thinking about this internationally, uh, maybe there's a, a little bit more of a convincing objection, you know. So if, you know, supposing you were to try to solve the political economy problems in the United States and make like a super egalitarian system of like like a basically chronic labor shortage that could more or less absorb limitless quantities of inter- immigrants um, and you, you know, threw open the borders to one degree or another, what would happen to other countries well, you know, you would basically suck the 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 wealthiest and the best educated people out of all of those places, like Nigeria, like South Africa, like yeah. China and and India and Bangladesh and so on and so forth. I mean, I mean that's and that's kind what of, that's what Rehan Salam wants, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. We could, that's, we we could talk about, like a long time about like the the actually the bullshit language of skills, and we need skills. No, no, that that that's that's what he wants, and I, and I'm with you, Coops, because I think like clearly this is this is one of the um one of the many topics that kind of implicates the national slash international nature of the socialist project, right? Like, like yeah. clearly it, it's really difficult to do socialism properly unless you get other nation states and other populations on board to doing it with you. And, and I think that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and so I guess I would just, I would, I would yeah, maybe conclude that, that, um, you know, the, these type of, uh, free movement is going to work is going to be much more feasible in an in an age in which there is really not any kind of difference between countries in terms of wealth, you know, where it's like people are going to different places because they feel like it, not because like oh I'm being massacred over here. I like make <laughs> ten times as much money over there. Yeah, Look, um, I mean, Lenin talked about this, that you guys familiar with the term labor aristocracy. It's this notion that even when the yeah. working class in like a first class nation like the United States, the working class deserves to fight for their rights as, as the working class. But in doing so, what's happening is they're taking advantage in this kind of like global imperialist neoliberal world we live in. They're taking advantage of their aristocracy. Uh, and position with respect to like third world countries, if you'll forgive the, the the politically incorrect nomenclature. So like, ultimately, you do what you can where you're at, but you have a position of privilege internationally or globally, even if it's not a position of privilege nationally. And and that's just one of the the, the tricky things we have to contend with. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Oh, go, go ahead, ahead, Ryan. Okay. Well, I was gonna say, I think. I think Ryan's right that like, you know, if we if we like designed the like, you know, our utopian egalitarian socialist society here in America, like that would in fact be capable of of absorbing vastly more immigrants than we do now. I think that's absolutely right. Um and I think it's an interesting point that he brings up that like it could, you know, it could destabilize other countries given like who would come and who wouldn't. And I think you know, you, you, you have interesting questions there. Would we need, would like America need an outreach program to provide resources to like the working class of the developed world so that they could get over here? Because like the upper class, excuse me, the working class of the developing, excuse me, of the developing world. So they could get over here because the, the upper class of the developing world is precisely who would get drained off the fastest under, under Ryan's point. Um, and so there is a whole, uh, 
yeah, I think there's a whole lot of I don't even know how to begin to grapple with that. That is an, that is a, like a whole lot of interesting dynamics that I yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to say though is I think the the way I mean, like, but like if we were to achieve like you know the socialist utopia here in America, that I think that at least I think would largely take care of the problem of you know uh, developed developed country developed nations working classes being hostile to the you know lower on the economic totem pole in absolute terms working class of the develop of the developing world right like this this whole problem of like working class americans like being hostile to the working class in china or wherever and then like you know upper class liberals in america tutting the working class in America for not being more open to the, to helping these people abroad. Um, and the way to fix that is like, you get, you get a more egalitarian society here at home and then people don't feel like they're getting fucked over. Um, the so other Ross, thing- question, question for you. Yeah. Federal, federal job guarantee. Does it apply to non-citizens or just citizens? I mean, under, I mean, like I would, I mean like my perfect world, it would apply to like, you know, anyone who hit the border. Right. Right. Like, you, your yeah. your so, your feet hit American soil. Yeah, sure, we'll give you a job. You want a job? Boom. We'll give it to you. Do it. I mean, and I there's like, like it. there is no. I mean, there is no. This gets back to what we're talking about. Like in terms of like, like what what's the problem? Like, do we not do we not have enough medicine? Do we not have enough food? Do we not have enough building materials to give these people a house? Like like in terms of real resources, like concrete fundamental economic reality, there's absolutely nothing stopping us from doing that. From being able to just like take anyone in the second they arrive what stops it is the fact that we have a monetary economy and how that money is distributed is based on labor relations and capital ownership and blah 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 and yeah and so it's nonsense bunch of nonsense um the other thing i was going to say uh back to alexi's point about the utopian demand is that you make the utopian demand for open borders right and then people come back at you like they're like well what the fuck about jobs and, you know, what the fuck about the welfare state? You know, uh, what the fuck about wages? You can't there, – there are – as I just said, I think there are plenty of responses to make to that. Like I, I would like a job guarantee that accepts everyone that hit – that arrives the moment they, they get here. Uh, that I would like a job guarantee that accepts everyone the moment they arrive. I can't even talk anymore because I've had too much bourbon. Um, <laughs> but you can't you can't make that argument from – the current like center right center left economic framework you can't do it like the that that current framework is about enforcing scarcity to make sure that like the owners of capital call the shots and how the economy is designed and run you cannot make the argument for open borders while you accept the terms of that economic design the only way to make the case is every time someone comes back at you with one of these questions about how your utopian utopian demand will work you have to explain to them you know all the shit we have been dealing with and we have been told about how we have to live under capitalism or at least american style capitalism is bullshit like you you you, you, you it will immediately bring you into that next argument you will not be able totally. to avoid it and i totally. think the prob one of the problems we have had is that a lot of the pro-immigration forces in American politics right now try very hard to make the case for like open borders or the movement towards open borders from the neoliberal position, 
Like, right. this is the EU problem. This is the America. Like, this is what happened in the European Union is they try to combine the two. It's what we do in America. We try to combine the two. They try uh, to avoid and, that fundamental problem. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't work. You know, <laughs> like the thing I, the one thing I love seeing is like you have all these well-meaning like center left reporters who like want to make the case for more immigration. So they talk to business leaders and they keep writing stories about how like we need more immigration to solve labor shortages. And I'm just like, <laughs> dude, labor shortages are what raise wages. So you are literally arguing we need more immigrants to hold workers' wages down. You are making the rights argument for it. It's bananas. Anyway, that's yeah. my, yeah. Imagine getting that idea from talking to a bunch of CEOs. Right. <laughs> they're, uh, it's like they're this, the <clears throat> world's most good faith ar- uh, arguers <laughs> is the business class, the leaders yeah. of major corporations. Yes, yes, indeed. They, they've got the common good really at heart. So um, that's what I had. I don't know. Who's got, who's got something else? So, so, so should we transition to the, like, because again, all of this debate that we're having, even amongst our differences, has nothing to do with the migrant caravan. Like, the care, we, we can assimilate. caravan, I would say. What did I say? Migrant? Sorry. The refugee caravan, the, the 7,000-ish number of refugees seeking asylum could be assimilated without anyone noticing literally at all. Oh yeah. And this kind of, yeah. this kind of goes to, to, to Ryan's point, but um, it's a sideshow, right? Like the, in, in terms of, of refugees and asylum and how few, for example, we've even taken from Syria, let alone from um, South and Latin America. When it comes to people that are displaced or stateless and there's different definitions of those things, um, the the moral and political way that we interpret that is important and not at all, I, I have to say, I- implicating these broader questions of what can we sustain as a country. Like, like, literally, there's no existential threat to us at all when it comes to asylum seekers. Can we can we agree on that and, and kind of put that yeah. to bed at least? Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. That that I mean, yeah. The, this. I would say with regard to the particularly uh, uh, refugees coming from from Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador, um, I would say if I were in charge of the United States, absolutely the number one priority should just be like anybody who gets in, anybody who comes to the border is taken in. But I think uh, just behind that would be to try to solve the uh uh or help solve the you know terrible political violence that is happening in those three countries which i would say is number 1 driven largely by fighting over control over the 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 access to the drug trade to the united states and number 2 has been exacerbated by us foreign policy saying that what you should do with uh, drug gangs is a uh, sick the military on them because that will work. Um, we've been doing that since like 2006 because it like kind of had a sort of quasi impact in uh, Colombia, but um, you know, the result everywhere else, the Colombian thing was like a very uh, uh, one-off sort of like idiosyncratic thing. The result everywhere else is like you smash one cartel, you create two cartels who are fighting each other and the, 
government and, you know, just like butchering the rest of the population, fighting to maintain a monopoly over the the trade supply. And so, like, you know, the, the upshot is like you could do a lot of things, you know, I would guess presumably that a lot like many, if not most of these refugees would rather not leave their home place, would rather stay where they where they're born and where their family and their friends live. And to the extent to which the the you know, the U.S. through its foreign policy could stop the, the like just fucking apocalyptic violence in that area of, of Central America from from happening by by legalizing drugs not for commercial sale within the united states and by by like saying you know we should scale back the use of the military and have a more intelligent response to uh, organized crime in these places um and try to like you know press that idea on those governments i think that would be a great idea too and sort of in the spirit of saying like you know, the idea is not to just like suck the entire population of the planet into the United States or that you should make it so that anybody anywhere can live. You know, the true utopian demand, anybody anywhere on the entire planet can live a decent life without exception. doesn't matter where you are. Um, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I Yeah, so- I, I agree with Ryan. I find that to be a very compelling point. Just like, you know, a lot of these a lot of a, a lot of these refugee situations are created because you know America goes out into the world and breaks shit and we should stop breaking shit like i find <laughs> it's like know. it's like the united states is a little toddler of a rich family that gets to break a bunch of shit in someone else's home and it doesn't matter because you can't say anything because it's a rich kid's baby right and and I, I, find, toddler, yeah. I find that to be a compelling point and like I, I i think that's at least a good starting point to like have like one-on-one arguments with people who are like worried about immigration or worried about the refugee caravan or anything like that um the other thing I was going to say was, well, like, I mean, <laughs> you could also add, like, NAFTA to this list. Like, you know, like, a million yep. Mexican farmers, like, lose their livelihoods in the 1990s, and then all come flooding to America. Surprise, surprise. Uh, so stop breaking shit, America. Uh, the other thing, uh, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, yeah, just, I think, the the refugee caravan in and of itself, I mean, like we said, like, uh the the right wing requires requires these issues to drum up in order to like politically and optically defend the oligarchy and this has been i mean this is raw opportunism that is that is why the refugee caravan is like on our news screens is because yeah. the trump administration is engaging in raw political opportunism and you know the media the news media of which i'm a member and this is how it works like the news media works on an advertising model so it needs those clicks it needs those views that's how it gets its money and makes its profits and so they like they they this is the news trump freaking out about the caravan is the news so they report on it it gets the clicks and everybody is now talking about a caravan of 7000 people that as alexi said we could absorb into our society and economy without a blip. <laughs> and can I just can I just say first of all, everyone Google Spross and click all the clicks so that he gets some advertising revenue or, <laughs> or whatever. But uh, secondly, um, as the theorist here, I want to bring in Hannah Arendt uh, just for a moment oh, yeah. because it seems like we should. Why not? And she talks about when when you're thinking like philosophically and morally about um, you know it seems so clear that whatever our capacity is as a nation. Um, 
we need a defense against the the, the right wing um, kind of othering of people of color and people from South and Central America. What, what do you say? What philosophically, theoretically do you say in support of the right for these people seeking asylum, seeking, um, you know, refugee status? And so I think Arendt, of course, as a German Jew uh, who fled Germany uh, amidst the the Holocaust and and, um, and found a place in, in this country, um, both personally and philosophically was disposed to seek to underpin the advocation for um, those seeking asylum philosophically in, in a way that I think will, will, will help us. And she spoke of the right to have rights and the fact that I think we can all recognize like any rights or human rights that people actually have are always and everywhere situated within a particular political community, usually a nation state. And so like people who are fleeing um, or have been stripped of their citizenship or are otherwise displaced have the most fundamental of human, human rights that, that like beg for a duty or obligation of others to take care of. And that is that, um, even worse than being oppressed is not even having the right to be oppressed, not even being a part of a political community in which you can be uh, given freedom or or be enslaved. And so she writes in, um, you know, in the origins of totalitarianism, she, she says that the right to have rights or the right of every individual to belong to humanity should be guaranteed by humanity itself. And she also adds, it is by no means certain whether this is possible. But but she is very, very clear on the fact that fundamentally, the most basic right that any human being has by virtue of being human is the right to be in a polis, in a political community, the right to have rights. And then you can adjudicate within that community who gets what and why. But like that stateless character that people have because of circumstance should never be um, permitted, especially in a globalized world like we have now. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I don't. Yeah, reading that bit of a rent, I um, I had I guess my my kind of, you know, you think about rights and and you think about like where do they come from? And I guess she kind of gets into this a little bit and, and um, you know, she's talking about the declaration of the rights of man and so forth Mm -hmm. um, and the declaration of independence. And you're talking about things that are self-evident, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created evil, blah, blah, blah. Um, And that's just like, like, it's just not terribly convincing. And as a sort of empirical fact is definitely not true. Uh, all men are not created equal in terms well, wait, of what do you what do you mean by that? So so like let me let me as a theorist let me jump in immediately. Like no one is treated that way, but but that's, that's not what, what I the, mean. Oh, that's what you mean. Yeah, yeah. So 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 like when they if, say are created equal means by their nature, by the very humanity in which we all participate, we are owed by our nature equal treatment now whether we receive that or not is a empirical or descriptive like yeah or and i would i guess i would say that like 
you know, I, I, I mean, I, I think that is a laudable normative goal to say that everyone is, is like an equal member of a political of, 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 you know, everyone should be treated equally and, uh, across the whole, you know, swath of humanity. Right. Um, I think that it's not the case and this never has been the case. And I think that like, you know, to say, to say that like, uh, you know, uh, uh, people are entitled to, people have inalienable rights and so on. Like that type of language tends to obscure how people come to be treated equally, which is by virtue of being a member of a political community, which can ensure that those, that people are treated equally. And like, whether, you know, a right being inalienable is kind of just nonsensical. Like it, like it, it doesn't, it like it's an, I mean, I guess as a sort of normative claim, it makes sense, but like, it's not true that you no, can, but that's the point. That's the point, Ryan. Like the point is that because normatively it should be the case, that should be the argument to force actual political entities to make it the case. Yeah, like, sure. That, yeah. Yeah. And I guess, you know, in, in so far as you're just making a normative claim to say that I'm the, I'm the fucking theorist. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, I mean, I think that, yeah, normative, as normative claims, rights discourse is 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 just fine. I think that it tends to be a little bit obscurantist. Into in t- it tends to it tends to lead people astray, in in so far as they tend to think of rights as existing before politics. You know, as like being no, yeah, inherent yeah. in, fact, in I, themselves. I think that's Arendt is seeking to do the opposite. Actually, I think she's trying to show that unless as a nation state or a political community, you actually make real, right? The actual civil political rights that you have in that community, then these people who you might otherwise say, yes, they have these human rights normatively, philosophically, right? They won't actually be experiencing that at all. So I I think you and Arendt would agree in, in, in in a way. Um, this is this is supposed to be pressure upon a political community to realize that it's incumbent upon us to actualize these things that we say are ph- philosophically real. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think, yeah. I think the the big question is like how you build. Like I, I talked about society before as a social organism, and I think it's like how do you create a social organism that is willing to put those rights into practice, right? That it, that does not rebel against them, that, you know, does not feel internally like it is being threatened by the demand to put those rights into practice, um, which gets us back to all, like, you know, the political economy and equality and all the other questions we've been dealing with. Um, I think... So, yeah. I, I was saying, like, I, I... The one thing that I, I struggle with is, like, I, I mean, like, I agree with Arendt's, like, overall, like, normative claim. Um, like, I, I don't know if, like, you, you, you go to, like, you know, the person in the street or the person in small town Texas and say to them, well, like, you know, Hannah Arendt, like, said A, B, and C about, like, you know, the right to have rights. <laughs> like, I, you know. It works I, for me, man. It works for me. Okay? I know. I know. I know. But, like, you know, with them, like, I think uh you 
I mean, there's any number of like moral and political traditions you can draw from, from like, you know, religion to uh, history to previous movements, like things that they may like have invested, like have emotional investment in that kind of thing. Um, I think, I guess I would think the key is like one thing I remember uh, Raihan Salam complaining about was the fact like, you know, when, when uh, President Obama signed DACA, right? a relatively modest middling improvement on immigration policy in the grand scheme of things. But he defends it in this soaring rhetoric about how we must always welcome the stranger. And so Salam gets Typical. like, you know, annoyed that he's like, well, he's like, <laughs> say what, Ryan? Typical. 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 Right. So Salam gets annoyed. He's like, you know, he's, you know, he's making this like very like contingent limited, like, prudential policy arrangement but he's defending it in these grand sweeping moral terms so if you're not on board with his with his particular prudential balancing of all these issues well then you're just an asshole right um but i think you know to build the uh, uh, like every utopian demand starts as like a middling policy step and then one middling policy step becomes another middling policy step. And so you need the soaring rhetoric, the soaring utopian demand at the end of that to indicate where you're going. The trick, I think, like I said before, is you have to be honest about the implications of what you're demanding, which gets us back to the fact that, like, okay, if, we're, if we do ultimately want to come to a place where everyone, where we are a polity that instantiates the right to have rights, or we are a polity that you know, always welcomes the stranger. What kind of internal relations do we have to have? What kind of internal economic relations do we have to have? What kind of internal political relations do we have to have? And you have to like talk openly about those questions. And because like that one utopian demand of being a polity that always provides everyone the right to have rights is going to then encompass and require other utopian demands that will build upon that. And you're going to have to be honest about all of those, which gets me back to the, the, the problem that like, you know, the, the defenders of that one utopian demand have not been willing to take on the other utopian demands that are implicated. Yeah. And, and Ryan, look, I'm going to agree also that like nation states, generally speaking, have a normal friend enemy distinction that they make and like political communities, even going back to Aristotle have this notion that like flourishing in the community involves a like delimited circumscribed community. Uh, of course that's usually um, demarcated by some like ethno historical demographic group. Whereas we have this special experiment that's basically built on immigration. And so it's kind of, kind of a bizarre thing where it's hard to say, no, no, this is what, right, like, American is, like, what this is what America means. And Trump, of course, and his uh, posse, if you will, I want to call them a posse, are trying to do the make America white again thing where America means, you know, white America and yeah. is specifically trying to frame uh, the friend-enemy distinction in those ethno-national terms, which is extremely dangerous and, and troubling. Um, and so it's all the more problematic, right? Because we have a vast land with 325 million people or whatever. Uh, and, and all the more strange with like the most powerful, wealthy country in the world uh, attempting to, to, to make this very classical distinction between us and other, right? So it's, it's kind of a... 
a unique like look i'm greek american so like the fact that greece has a small piece a land the the size of uh georgia with like 10 million people and if it suddenly had you know 10 million people flooding in from asia i i would be like wow that's probably gonna wipe out the the total like history of greece as i know it and that's gonna totally change you know that might be a rational fear i have like oh that would be kind of sad to see my homeland totally overrun and changed in every single way, like culturally, demographically, etc. But in, in the country like we have, that's pluralistic as its like very foundation, that has so much land, it has so many people, it is just like a total bullshit narrative by the right, you know, that seeks to undo uh, an otherwise important civic um, nationalism based on philosophy of granting rights to any willing to enter on the recognition of those values and principles. And so it just seems dangerous to me to kind of cede any ground to those that would seek to uh, push against the other in that way. Yeah, well, I... um yeah, I guess I don't know. As a concluding comment, you know, like like yeah, like open borders is not going to be on any kind of uh platform. Yeah, yeah, like like up for a congressional vote at any time uh soon. Um and I certainly would say, you know, that when it comes to like like other concrete policy too, how many refugees are we going to take in? It was like Trump's taking in like 10 people this year. <laughs> uh, uh, that, you know, that we, we should be doing, I think in the Obama years, it was like 80,000, 90,000 refugees per year. You know, like I think we could do 10 times that many without even a, a, a blinking. Um, but I, th- you know, I guess, I would situate my policy in terms of like trying to secure like material uh, prosperity across the entire planet, and exactly, and yeah, and and you know, accepting definitely accepting the need for like like lots and lots of people to move across places whenever you know there's like a sort of localized disaster or hurricane or so forth. But at the same time, not, you know... Fucking uh, stop the the neoliberal policies that give rise to all these destabilizing geopolitical situations, right? Like, like climate change. Otherwise. Number yeah, like climate one. Change. That's, Fuck. That's a... That's, I mean, probably, you know, you're talking about refugees. That's probably the number one thing. I mean, the Yemen thing is definitely exacerbated by climate change. They got no, they got no water, you know? And also in uh, uh, the Sudan... Uh, both of those countries um and yeah so i guess i would i would say like you know it's it's kind of a difficult needle to thread but like the way the way i would the way i would place it is that like like all rich countries have an obligation to take in you know as 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 many immigrants and refugees as is like sort of practical practicable and at the same time you know, using their foreign policy to push against the forces that 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 shove people out of their home countries, you know, to make it such that 
people are if people are you know the ideal world i think we want to live in is 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 one in which people come because they're like interested and they have or they're like i want to come visit and i want to see the people and i want to like look at the national parks and stuff and not like i'm gonna be butchered by isis you know like like that that is what we should try to create over time it's not going to be easy but i think that like you know if we're looking at the kind of Federation Star Trek world of Earth, that's what, you know, to slowly dissolve the nation state away, to have a place where there's no borders, that's what it would look like. Uh, do I, do I, should I have some kind of... <laughs> yes, yes, okay. you should. Yes, you should. Well, I think I come back to like my, you know just my point about like, I do think the conservatives are right in the sense of like society is, is an organism. And as an organism, it has certain, you know, limits or parameters or abilities and limits to those abilities. Um, but like, you know, as I already said, how that organism is constituted in terms of its economic structure and its political economy and everything else is like, can vastly change those abilities. So I think the demand, the utopian demand for open borders is like laudable and should be made, but it is, but like it has to be, it has to be done with an acknowledgement of like the nature of the social organism and what other utopian demands are necessary so that this particular utopian demand of open borders does not cause a social organism to like freak the fuck out. Um, because I think, like we said, as with the European Union, we have like a demonstrated case that like the utopian demand, that one utopian demand of open borders, if combined with like the wrong circumstances, leads to really terrible shit. Um, yeah, good. So, yeah. So like, just like, you know, the utopian, that one utopian demand has to be made in an honest reckoning with the other utopian demands that are implicated. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, I be, that's, yeah. That's and right. I, so that's I come good. back. If if you if you want open borders, you have to advocate for socialism. Like I, I come back. To- <laughs> I'm a baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's like that's right. Like you know, uh, just hear me out, man. Open borders work if you listen to my whole scheme. And uh, and the thing you think is the problem with immigration is not the problem because you're missing the structural picture. So let's right, right, yeah. Let's the, let's, the, let's take yeah. Yeah, the scar- the scarcity that people like blame on immigration is created by neoliberalism if we want to be pithy. I mean, that's that's the situation. And so like you don't you don't want to like create the conditions that val- that validate their narrative. Yeah, any opportunity to disabuse people of that false narrative is a good opportunity to take and uh use that opening to slam in the most idealistic project that socialism can offer. So so let's do that too. Good. Yeah. I think that's a good place to stop. All right. Nice. Thank well, thank you, Spross, for, for joining the fun. Yeah, uh, It's always you. a pleasure. Did, did, did I do well? I don't know. <laughs> I think so. The listeners will tell us. They always do. Anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, <laughs> we'll never bring uh, Spross on again. <laughs> oh, God. Give us all your opinions. Tell us how it went. Uh, judge Spross eternally. And, uh, and rate us on iTunes. Give us the five stars. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.